Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. So we are over 40 episodes into this show, and I've had the privilege of being joined by some really dreamy guests, whether they've been mentors, close friends, or new connections. But I got to say, this episode is extra special for me because the two people I'm speaking with today are not only some of my greatest inspirations, but they really are the most influential figures in the field of modern couples therapy. And they are the world's leading relationship scientists. Yes, it's the Gottmans. Doctors John Gottman and Julie Schwartz Gottman are co-founders of the Gottman Institute. Dr. John Gottman previously served as executive director of the Relationship Research Institute and is a professor emeritus of psychology at the University of Washington, where he founded the Love Lab. He is world-renowned for his work on marital stability and divorce prediction and has conducted 40 years of groundbreaking research with thousands of couples. His work has earned him numerous major awards, and he was named one of the top 10 most influential therapists of the past quarter century. He's the author of numerous best-selling books, including The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work, What Makes Love Last, Eight Dates, and more. Dr. Julie Schwartz-Gottman is president of the Gottman Institute and co-founder of Affective Software, Inc., a highly respected clinical psychologist. She was named Washington State Psychologist of the Year and received the 2021 Psychotherapy Networker Lifetime Achievement Award. She's the author and co-author of many best-selling books, including Eight Dates, 10 Lessons to Transform Your Marriage, The Man's Guide to Women, and Baby Makes Three. Most recently, the Gottmans published their newest book, which I love. It's called The Love Prescription. Seven Days to More Intimacy, Connection, and Joy. And this book distills their life's work into a bite-sized seven-day action plan with easy and immediately actionable steps. I am truly so touched that Dr. John and Dr. Julie joined me on the show, and I'm even more touched by the conversation that ensued. In addition to their decades of impressive research and scholarship, the Gottmans are just as impressive in their personal life as dedicated grandparents, which is a new role that they've shown up for in the most beautiful and poignant of ways. So you are going to hear about that and so much more in our conversation right now. I hope that you enjoy it. Oh my goodness. Dr. John Gottman and Dr. Julie Gottman, you are here with me and I am just over the moon. (laughs) Thank you, Alexandra. It's wonderful to be here, Alexandra. Oh my gosh. So, you know, I was a 22-year-old 
first year doctoral student at Northwestern University. And I had just started a clinical and research externship, a scholarship program with Dr. Bill Pinzoff at the Family Institute. And Dr. John Gottman came and gave a lecture. I think it was the first time I had ever even heard of you because I had just started this program and I was not even sure I wanted to study marriage or relationships. But I remember the lecture hall that you were in. I remember where I sat in the lecture hall and I scribbled notes like it was my job. And it was such a moment of reckoning for me. And so to be here with you all 25 years later is such a treat. So I want to start by just saying thank you for both of you, for your passion, for your wisdom, and for your deep commitment to relationship help. I love it. Thank you. Thanks. On Reimagining Love, we start from a place that we get to be whole as we are and forever works in progress. Dr. John and Dr. Julie, What is a growing edge that you are currently working on in your marriage? And what has it been teaching you lately? Mm. Alexandra, the biggest expansion in our marriage is the inclusion of a new grandchild, our first grandchild, who is seven months old, and his name is Ezra, and he is a little fireball. He's a (laughs) dynamo. This child is going to be running marathons by the age of two, I think. (laughs) Uh, And his mom, our daughter, and son-in-law live down south in Portland, Oregon. We're way up north, about seven hours north. And so we're going back and forth between Orcas Island and Portland to help care for this child. And lo and behold, our kids have said they want to raise their child in a multi-generational family. Um, and that includes us and our dog. So we're very, very excited about that, but not quite sure where we're going to land because we love Orcas Islands and we love our family. And so, and she is in med school and uh, we'll be going into a residency training program somewhere on the earth and we're not sure where. And so how to navigate uh, both being here with our community on Orcas Island and traveling for our work and being a very present pair of grandparents, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're trying to figure that out. But the addition has been an enormous amount of joy in loving this kid, getting to know him and getting to see our kids be parents, wonderful parents. And it's just an unexpected amount of joy receiving that and experiencing it. And it was a great journey for us to be parents together. And, you know, we loved it. And now to be grandparents, it's even even greater. It's a wonderful world of love and joy. And, you know, it's really expanded our own relationship, I think, Mm -hmm. because of it. I love seeing Julie be a grandma. She's such a good grandma, you know, and and the baby delights in her. They laugh together and he chuckles and giggles and just great. It is really wonderful, Alexandra. And to see John holding the baby and singing old Yiddish songs (laughs) to the baby. I mean, it's phenomenal. It's, you know, we're witnessing each other in a very different role now. Uh, and we're a whole lot older than when we had our daughter. So it's just a beautiful thing. There's a, a peacefulness and a rightness about yeah. all of it mm-hmm. um, that oh. feels just terrific. And I can imagine the kind of purity of that connection. I am just picturing your daughter and your son-in-law getting to delight in the relationship that she's watching build that she really isn't part of. Like, I know I experienced a ton of healing in my own relationship with my mom when I watched how our kids bonded with her and what she sees in them. It's different than what I see in them. And like getting to kind of back up and let that relationship unfold has been truly one of the biggest gifts in my life as well as watching those being sandwiched between these, you know, two generations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been delightful. Indeed. Oh, I'm so glad. So 
The heart of my clinical and academic work is something that I have called relational self-awareness. So it's understanding who we are in the context of our most important relationships, primarily our intimate relationships. It's about understanding our relationship to relationships and the particular set of strengths and wounds and tendencies and triggers that we bring in based on family of origin, media, gender socialization, cultural socialization, earlier relationship experiences. And I am clear in my work that I stand on the shoulders of giants, including the two of you, because the heart of relational self-awareness really is helping people start to think systemically. That has been, to me, the biggest gift of your work is giving us an exquisite understanding and language and ability to frame what happens in the space between people. And all of what you have done starts with the data, right? You have diligently and tirelessly followed the science. You have not been, you know, moralistic. You have followed the science and built from the ground up. So why do you believe that this approach that you all have taken for a quarter of a century, why do you believe it has been so effective and so transformative for the couples and individuals that you serve? Speaking of the shoulders of giants, the shoulders that we have stood upon are actually the 3,000 couples that John has studied, John and his colleague, Dr. Robert Levinson at UC Berkeley. Those couples taught us by coming into the lab over and over again over the course of two decades, what makes a relationship successful, what makes a relationship unsuccessful and perhaps failing. And they have been completely open and vulnerable when they have been talking to each other and the measurements that have been taken in the lab, in our apartment lab, have given us the secrets. They've uncloaked the secrets of what preserves love, what preserves connection, bonding, joy in a relationship. And that's really what we try to integrate into this book. A lot of times in the area of relationships, people's intuitions make a great deal of sense and yet turn out to be wrong. When we listen to the data, uh, a lot of times, you know, we sharpen our ability to perceive what is true. So a good example is a study that Robinson and Price did that was published in 1980 where they put observers in couples' homes, just observing husband and wife being nice to each other and recording what they did in an evening to be kind, generous, affectionate, loving to one another. And Robinson and Price trained the couple to do that with one another as well. So husband was observing wife and an observer was observing the wife and so on. And what they found was really surprising. Initially, people thought that in unhappy relationships, people are just not very nice to each other. And they, so they need to really increase positivity. Robinson and Price found that the problem is that people are being positive to one another. But in an unhappy relationship, they miss 50% of the positivity that is actually there. So the problem is perception. You know, nobody would have really guessed that unless like data. So there's all kinds of surprising things that come out of actually studying what couples do. And I kept track of my own hypotheses over time, and I'm wrong 60% of the time. And it's the data that drive us in a direction that reveals the truth and allows us then, as Julie and I have done, to build theory of why these findings work what the organization is in relationships. And relational self-awareness, as you mentioned, our relation to relationships is so critical. And if it's driven by data, by the truth, then it's going to be productive. That's really the guiding principle that all of us have been working from, is listen to the data. Yeah. That study from 1980 is so telling, isn't it? Because when a couple sits down for session one of couples therapy, 
They are very, very convinced. It feels subjectively very convincing that my partner has to be different in order for this relationship to improve. That feels so true. And what that data tells us is it just, it flips it back on the self, right? Like I need to change the pair of glasses through which I experience my partner and take the risk because it's risky. When you've got walls built up, it's very convenient to feel justified staying back there behind your wall. And that finding is telling us that changing the relationship starts by entertaining the possibility that there are good things going on that you, in fact, are just blinded to. It is simultaneously like frustrating and humbling, but ultimately incredibly empowering. It's true, because if you are really counting on your partner to change in order for the relationship to improve, you're counting on something that you have no control over. Another human being, another brain, another set of eyes, hands, etc. When you are only counting on yourself in terms of your behavior, your emotional expression, your heart, really, and what comes from there, your consideration, your thoughtfulness, your generosity, uh, your sensuality, your warmth. When you're counting on yourself, that is empowering because you do have control over some of yourself, maybe not all of you, but some of you. And there's the power right there. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. In your brand new book, The Love Prescription, you start right off with the reminder to all of us that love is a verb. It's a practice. And your mantra, also the name of your podcast, is small things often. Why do the small things often matter so much? Yeah, that's a great question, Alexandra. What we observed in the apartment lab that Julie and I designed, where we saw 130 newlyweds just a couple of months after their wedding, was that there are these very small moments that are very powerful, where one person is trying to connect with the other and make a bid for connection, an attempt to connect with their partner. And when the camera switches to the partner to see the reaction, we score it as either turning toward, which is connecting with the partner, giving the partner attention, interest, support, affection, humor, whatever it is asked for, and or turning against, which is a kind of irritable response, or no response, turning away. Six years later, we found that the couples who divorced within six years of the wedding, when we look back earlier, just a couple of months after the wedding, they were turning toward only 33% of the time. Whereas the people who stayed married six years earlier were turning toward 86% of the time. It's a huge difference in connection in what appear to be very small moments that are easily overlooked And yet they build an emotional bank account in the relationship that turning toward is extremely powerful. I wonder sometimes if it is these romanticized notions that love is grand gestures, peak moments, sex that blows your mind, like that we sort of in this romanticized world, we kind of grasp for the big things to make the relationship okay. And here you have flipped it completely on its head and said, in fact, it is the small practices that really are the heart of what makes a relationship happy and satisfying and safe and connecting. 
I think if you ground in the reality of life these days, especially in European and North American countries and so on, people are incredibly busy. People have amazing, crammed full of events life. They're running their kids to after-school activities. They're having to grocery shop, clean the house. They are going to jobs. They're dual career couples, some people. They're running, 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 running. So, you know, I ask you, if you are really running fast, how well do you see the blade of grass that you run by? You're not going to see it very well. You have to slow down. Well, that blade of grass may be your partner (laughs) that you're flying by. Uh, And you're not noticing that they look exquisitely beautiful today. Mm. You're not noticing that, wow, they emptied the dishwasher and that's not usually their chore. So you have to slow down enough to notice those small moments, those little tiny moments. It really makes such a huge difference because all of us want to be known. All of us want to be seen. All of us want to be mirrored in the best possible light, even when we're old and wrinkled. We want to see love in our partner's eyes. And the grand gestures, yes, will do something for a short time. But you know how short our attention spans are. So that grand gesture may last for a day, maybe a week, and Mm -hmm. then poof, it's gone and you're back into the checklist every day. So how are you going to preserve that feeling of love while you're racing through time together. Well, it's these little moments. They don't take a huge amount of energy. You don't have to go shopping at, you know, wherever, Neiman Marcus, to get the most expensive gift you can afford. You don't have to do that. You just have to say, good morning, you look lovely today. (laughs) That's it. That's all it takes. And it makes, as John saw in the lab research, it makes such a huge, significant difference six years down the road in terms of whether the relationship is warm and caring and sweet and connected or very distant or terribly conflicted, uh, moving towards perhaps burial. There's a great study that was done uh, recently uh, with 70,000 people in 24 countries asking one question, what's the difference between people who say they have a great sex life and people who say they have an awful sex life? And, you know, I expected the answer would be what they do in the bedroom would make the difference. But it's not. It's really people have a great sex life, say I love you every day and mean it. They kiss one another passionately for no reason at all. They're affectionate, even in public. They give compliments. They have a weekly romantic date. You know, it's small things often that really make a dramatic difference in the long run. I was so glad that you all included the list. It's only 13 items. You know, the research highlighted these 13 practices that couples who report really enjoying their sex life, it was 13 practices. And to the point that you both are making, we imagine that to have a great relationship is going to be a lot more effort, but it doesn't take any more effort to turn toward a partner's bid than it takes to turn against or turn away. It's all sort of the same amount of effort. So it's a really good kind of gut check and soul check about what is keeping me from turning toward my partner's bid when it arguably turning toward isn't more taxing than turning away or turning against. In fact, turning against creates a setup for a conflict, which is incredibly emotionally taxing. Sometimes we turn away, I think, because we fear that turning toward is going to lead to another thing, right? If my partner gives me a hug in the kitchen and I respond, is it then going to cue that we're going to have sex, right? Versus turning toward and having it just be that that moment begins and ends with an awesome hug in the kitchen. So just checking in about what's keeping you from turning toward. Is it busyness? Is it distraction? Is it fear that if I give an inch, they're going to want a mile? Like, what is the block? Yeah, that's a really great question, too. I've seen in my clinical work that, uh, as Brene Brown has wonderfully studied, it's feeling vulnerable. 
that seems to be the biggest reason, that when we connect with our partner, we're opening ourselves to greater connection, which means a greater amount of being seen and of being open to being heard again. And because human beings are human, we hurt each other from time to time. Sometimes they're big hurts, sometimes they're little hurts. But do we give our partners the benefit of the doubt when those things hurt, when those little grumpy moments may occur? Do we give partners the benefit of the doubt? Well, the more positive moments of connection we allow by taking our walls down, the more benefit of the doubt you're going to give your partner, your partner will give you. That's interesting because it balances out the human condition. (laughs) It balances out, right, our tendency to fail, our tendency to let the cracks in ourselves generate a little criticism one day when you walk in the kitchen and the kitchen is dirty, a little sharp edge of sarcasm, something like that. You know, is your partner going to say, ah, they must have had a bad night of sleep, I'll let it go. Or is your partner going to say, God, that really hurt. How could she say that? I'm going to pull away. I'm going to stay distant. I don't trust her. Again, those moments are important. Yeah, the other thing we discovered, Alexandra, and this was really surprising, couples who really do well in the future are able to laugh together even when they're disagreeing, even during conflict. They're able to laugh together and laugh at themselves. And that reduces physiological arousal. So that was a big puzzle. How do you get people to laugh when they're in conflict? Well, it turns out that turning toward is the secret. If you turn toward, automatically people have access to their sense of humor, even when they're disagreeing. They're affectionate, even when they're disagreeing. So turning toward has huge spillover effects into conflict. And you wouldn't think that'd be true. You'd think, well, you know, okay, that's building positivity, but it's not going to affect conflict. But it does, it has a huge effect on conflict. It's the training you do ahead of time so that when the inevitable conflict hits, you've got enough kind of money in the bank that you can leverage it there. John tells a story in the book about as you were working on responding to bids for connection, having a really, really hard time being able to build up a grudge against Julie. Like it was just, it became impossible. Like you couldn't do it anymore. You couldn't hold a grudge. There was too much. You had trained your brain to look for positivity, to respond to bids, to make bids that you really couldn't hold on to a grudge in the same way anymore. Right. And I lost that sort of delicious. Um, the ability to bear a grudge where you feel sorry for yourself. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. You wrap it around like a blanket. Bad person, and you you have all the good in the relationship, mm. and you feel like an innocent victim. And yeah. there's a part of it that is really satisfying. I couldn't do that anymore. <laughs> I would say to myself, oh, Julie, Julie's so mean. And then this voice would come into my head that said, yeah, this mean woman took care of you when you were sick. Shut up. I'm trying to build a work. I couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> Will you marry me? <laughs> I think he's a pretty good bet, Julie. He's a pretty good bet. Yeah, really. <laughs> I loved so much. Uh, I don't know that I've seen this in your prior books. The way in which you wove your own marriage in so deeply. And I mean, I think you always have used little snapshots, but I just, I felt it so much in this book. And I want to read one little piece where you wrote, our own fights and fixes would lead us back to the lab where we would experimentally confirm or disprove what we'd notice in our own relationship. Meanwhile, information would emerge from our lab studies that we'd try out ourselves, our work with clients, our own relationship, and the lab Each element of our lives has always informed the others, like a big circle spiraling upward as we learn more and more about the inner workings of long-term love, how the gears work, what makes it work smoothly, and what gums it up. It's beautiful. That's the great thing about, and let me give advice to all you single people out there, marry a married researcher. (laughs) It's really a good thing because... 
they're bringing home uh, some ideas and you get to jump on those ideas and weave them into a different way of conversing with one another Mm -hmm. uh, that makes all the difference in the world. That's what those couples in the lab have taught us. I've been married for almost 23 years and Todd has been with me since my first psychology class as an undergrad student, not even my first, you know, doctoral class. He doesn't listen to any other podcast, but he listens to Reimagining Love every week. And he has started to quote me to me when I'm not walking my talk. So this this is a new level of trouble in this marriage. (laughs) I totally get it. I love, I absolutely relish the moments when I can turn to John and say, you call yourself a marriage therapist? Ah, the dig. I love it. I love it. That's so sad. That is so satisfying. (laughs) Right. This transitions us to a listener question that I really am excited to talk about with you all. You know, on our website, listeners submit their questions. And I've been saving this one in the hopes that I would get to talk about it with you because number one, the listener references you. But number two, It's a theme lately in a bunch of these listener questions. So I'm really eager to get your two cents. So Michelle, who comes to us from Lisbon, Portugal, and who uses she, her pronouns, she writes that I, Alexandra, had done a recent Instagram post about deep and meaningful conversations and that that post had spoken to her. So she says, I also live for these deep and meaningful conversations, but I struggle to have them somewhat regularly with my boyfriend. We've been together for two years, and he has opened up substantially in this time, but it's a challenge to have deep conversations with him unless we are doing a date from the eight dates by the Gottmans. I'm very emotionally open, and he is not. I tried to get him to do the 36 questions to fall in love from the New York Times, and he was not a fan. Any thoughts on how to have these outside of a structured date where there's a plan to do so. So she wants to go deeper. What do you think stands out to you? The first thing that the structured date provides, and you can jump from there, is time. Time for somebody to reflect, time to really think about a question that's being asked. And in our book, we talk about open-ended questions. Open-ended questions, of course, are questions that have a pages and pages for an answer. They're not a yes, no, what's your favorite color, who's your favorite friend, and so on. They're questions that go much deeper than that, and that can lead to deeper conversation. But a lot of people are uncomfortable going deep. They're uncomfortable going deep in public because emotion may come up, and it may not be an honorable thing for them to show emotion on their faces, in their bodies. So it's lovely to have a deeper conversation when you're taking a walk, when you are just having coffee in the morning. An interesting approach to this boyfriend might be to ask him what's uncomfortable for you about uh, opening up emotion. How was emotion handled in your family growing up? Was it okay for you to express anxiety or fear? If it's a a man, probably not, uh, given our social conditioning. Was it okay to express sadness? How did your family show sadness if they lost a, a beloved person in their lives? How did your family show anger? So, you know, finding out more about the history of somebody really tells you a lot about your partner's feeling about feelings, what we call meta-emotion. And what I'm gathering is that our questioner is really wanting the bonding that comes from emotional vulnerability. And what that takes is the partner's willingness to disclose emotion, which again comes into the difficulty of men expressing emotion, perhaps especially in a country like Portugal, where being strong and tough is very, very important. You're hypothesizing that it may be less that he is somehow holding out on her or being actively resistant, but really that this is an actual growing edge for him to identify 
tolerate, express his own emotion. He may not have a lot of experience accessing his own interior. And so it may be that this is just what to her feels like it's six inches deep. To him feels like it's the bottom of the ocean just because of experiential difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said, Alexandra. One of my thoughts was wanting her to get really clear on what it is that she's seeking in this conversation. And Julie, you're hypothesizing that it's emotional vulnerability. It probably is, but I guess I would want her to get really clear. Like what's the feeling she wants to have inside of her? What does she want the space between the two of them to feel like? And I wonder if there might be like a palette or a menu of different pathways into that feeling. It doesn't surprise me that somebody who follows my work and follows your work puts a high value on emotional dialogue, verbal processing. So it doesn't surprise me that that her idea is deep, meaningful conversation is the gold standard. But I would want to be curious with her about if she can get clear on what's the feeling she's hoping to have, might there be other pathways like, I don't know, a a, a trip, walking through a museum together, some sort of, you know, particular like physical or erotic experience where it's not done verbally, but there's some sort of experience that may create that feeling that she's wanting. Yeah, those are very, very good points. Sometimes, you know, it's interesting in my work with clients, the deepest moments are ones of silence where perhaps a story has been told or something has been shared. And it's not necessarily the emotion. It's simply the details of a story. And in that silence, you can read a whole universe of responses to it that's very, very deep. And if you tune into the silence, then you can feel into connection with the individual who told the story. So, you know, that's one. But also seeing plays that are moving. Mm -hmm. Uh, And how do you relate to that play? How do you relate to that painting? How do you relate to that concerto? So witnessing something that is deepening in the environment around you, in the world around you, And then talking about that or going to a dance performance or going dancing (laughs) also create uh, lovely moments of depth and connection too. Do you think there's a possibility that he is confounding deep, meaningful conversation and picking apart the relationship which might start to feel really quickly like picking apart him. Well, that's certainly a possibility if that's really what she's doing in those deeper conversations. I don't know. If that is going on, then the likelihood of him feeling comfortable going deep is unlikely. Mm -hmm. Uh (laughs) He's Uh not going to want to uh, if it ends up being that kind of analysis. On the other hand, I mean, you know, we can conjecture all kinds of things. Another might be that she wants to talk about the seriousness of the relationship. And is he really serious? Is he committed? Where is the relationship going in the future? And he may be an individual who, you know, who knows who's been hurt in the past, who wants to take it slow, isn't quite ready for a commitment at that level yet, mm-hmm. and may feel pressured by that kind of deep conversation. A thought I have is uh, something that Helen Fisher pointed out in her book, The Anatomy of Love. Men and women are different a lot of times in the way they talk to each other and feel intimately connected. So if you take a look at uh, some of the photographs that she's presented of uh, two men having lunch together in a public space, versus two women having lunch together in a public space. The women are face-to-face. The men are shoulder-to-shoulder. The men feel close to their friend when they're shoulder-to-shoulder looking at the same thing together. Mm -hmm. The women feel close when they're face-to-face connected, and it feels much more intimate. To a man, quite often what feels intimate is being together together doing something or looking at something. 
and sort of facing the world together, almost like battle buddies in a way. <laughs> and so there may be a difference in terms of what feels intimate to her boyfriend and what feels intimate to her that really is rooted in differences between men and women. Yep. My, uh, you know, I teach a, a class called Marriage 101 at Northwestern. We've been doing it for 20 something years. And that is something I've heard over and over again from heterosexual, you know, women who date men is like his definition of a good time is for me to come over and watch him play video games. Right. And that that is like, like actual battle buddies, like come sit by me and experience this with me. And that's probably why this guy didn't like the 36 questions, right? It was just the two of them sitting across the table, looking at each other and going through 36 questions, but why he really does well with one of your eight dates, because there, the the context is such that they're moving through an experience together. And that kind of readies him to be more open, be more present. So maybe we want her to really remember the context, to set up that when she's craving deep and meaningful with him, that they both attend to the context, creating a context where they're a bit more side by side. They're sharing something together. Think about going fishing. (laughs) Fishing is one of those things that a lot of fellows love to do. And they have very deep conversations with the people they go fishing with. (laughs) So consider that. Interesting. It's the irony of heterosexuality, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's it. it. I also was thinking about wanting to make sure that she's sourcing herself. You know, if she loves these deep, meaningful conversations, does she have other places she can turn to? I think that's one of the romanticized myths that we get in that gets us into trouble, isn't it? That we want all of our needs to be met by our partner. And I don't want her to stop wanting that kind of connection with him, but I just want to make sure that maybe she's divvying up, you know, those sources of connection. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly a good point. You know, when we partner with somebody and certainly two years is a nice long time that she's been with her boyfriend, you have to really understand who your partner is, their strengths and their challenges. And nobody is going to be perfect. Nobody is going to have everything that you need. And I think that's what you're alluding to, Alexandra, that our partners may be fabulous in the kitchen. They're great cooks. They're great teammates. They're willing to help out in the house. They are really, really funny. And they make you laugh all the time which is a great gift. However, they may be limited in other ways. They may be uncomfortable expressing certain emotions, or they may really want to have deep conversations all the time with the intensity that you might share with a girlfriend, for example. It's key to accept who your partner is. That's what moves a healthy long-term relationship and that you also with some humility you are bringing to the table your own strengths but your own challenges too you may want deep conversation all the time well that can be exhausting for another person who you know every now and then like a whale in the sea needs to come up for air uh, and light <laughs> right before diving back down again. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. One of the things that you all did in this newest book that I loved so much was you really challenged us to let go of trying to piece apart the difference between a want and a need. And I don't know if I've heard you all talk about that before, but it really struck me that you said, let's just let go of trying to piece apart a want versus a need. And you said these are all different shades on the spectrum. And you were alluding to the fact that sometimes we get focused on want versus need because we just struggle so much with the fact that we actually do have needs and that we need to turn towards our partner with those needs. So can you talk us through that a little bit more before I let you go? Yeah, that's one of my particular pet peeves is people coming in and say, well, what I really, really want is this, but Um, I'm not supposed to have what I want. It should only be a necessity, i.e. a need. 
And, you know, this is a country, uh, the United States, and there are other places like this as well, where uh, we're supposed to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We're supposed to be independent, individual. The uh, measure of mental health is how autonomous you are, which means separate and individual and not relying on somebody else. Interdependency is often mislabeled as dependence, and dependence is bad. Only children are dependent, not adults. Well, that is absolutely false. We are pack animals. We depend on each other. We've been pack animals since we came out of the trees millions of years ago. We need each other to survive. And want is just another word for need. I think that we need for all kinds of reasons, you see. Uh, We may need just because we're feeling empty and lonely, and so we want more connection. We may need just because we're feeling a little bit materially deprived, and so we're wanting to exert a little power and create more bounty in our home by buying something a little more for our home. Well, is that a want or a need? You've got a table and chairs. What do you want with this decorative item? Who cares about that? Well, maybe beauty and aesthetics are really important to you. And that is a part of your own identity. And so you want to make your environment beautiful. You go forth and do so. Well, somebody's condemning that. As you just want that, you're being greedy. Well, no, you're not. You are trying to resonate with different facets of your identity. And you're like a jewel, right? With many different facets. So each facet calls for some fulfillment of some kind. So some of those we call wants, some of those we call needs. It's all irrelevant. It doesn't matter. You're trying to fulfill your life and your life is anchored in who you are so we are blessed with this unbelievable bounty all around us of friends of people of relationships of hopefully partners pets flowers sea grass forest whales and so i really want to go kayaking today even though i've got a ton of work to do Well, that's a want. So what? It's a reflection of who you are and what you're yearning for. And aren't you entitled to fulfill, you know, what you're yearning for? Yeah, you are. Yeah, I would say even honoring your partner's preferences is a way of connecting emotionally. Just knowing what your partner prefers over what your partner doesn't prefer. Chicken tonight or fish? So it doesn't have to be a need or a want. It can just be a preference or finding out where your partner's mood is right now. That's so healing. I think if we grew up in a family system where things had to be five alarm fires before we were attended to, then that subtlety around preference, it's like, what is that? That doesn't even flash on the radar screen. So that is so healing then to cultivate a relationship where people are deeply curious about preferences. You don't have to have a leg that's like falling off of your body before you (laughs) tend to it, right? I want to tend to the little thing before it becomes a big, awful thing. Yeah. Right. Yep. That's exactly right. Mm, And it circles back to those small moments, right? Those small moments are so meaningful in terms of turning toward. So finding out preferences and then fulfilling those preferences for your partner is a lovely little gift to them. Doesn't cost you much, but it's a lovely gift and it preserves love when those mount. Well, I've told you, I, I've loved all of your books, but this one, I mean, this new guy might be my favorite. It's just such a beautiful, small book that packs so much. There's a ton of science, but it's really gentle science. It's not going to scare anybody. Like It's just beautiful. You both did a magnificent job. And it is a seven-day plan. So every day, a couple gets a little dose, and every single day is imminently doable. And 
The science is there to back it up. But what do you both love about this new book of yours? Well, I love that it's a recipe for success. Yeah. And it's easy to follow. It's easy to do. People get overwhelmed when they think, oh, my God, I've got to have six months of therapy to make, you know, this relationship better. If they can do one small thing every single day, that in itself gives them hope. And it's not impossible to do. It's easy to do. And, you know, I think in our world today, we need as much hope as we can get. And this book, I think, provides with hope. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. So I am so grateful to have had this time with both of you. And I suspect that most of my listeners know exactly where to find you and have been loving you for as long as I have. But if anybody needs to figure out how the heck to dive in more deeply with the Gottmans, where do you want people to start? Well, they should start with Gottman.com, our website, G-O-T-T-M-A-N.com which is our Gottman Institute website. There's tons of resources. There's books, there's workshops, there's online learning, lots of that for both couples, individuals, and clinicians. They can also go to Gottman Connect, a new website that we've developed that provides an app that gives an assessment of the relationship you're in, which is straight out of the lab, actually. So we've translated our lab assessments of relationship into an app you can do in the privacy of your own home, along with recommendations and then providing exercises for you to do to strengthen different aspects of your relationship. So that's called Gottman Connect. Well, we will put all of those links in the show notes, including a link to the new book. So it's easy for people to grab right from this episode. Absolutely. Wonderful. Thank Thank you, Alexandra. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. John and Dr. Julie, for being here with me. It was such an honor to have the Gottmans on the show And I have no doubt that you enjoyed hearing from these legends. Remember to check out The Love Prescription, the Gottman's newest book, by following the link in the show notes of this episode. Until next time, be well. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Danelle Cloutier of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want to have answered on the show? Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. I can't wait to hear from you.